I just love it when the, the whole family, both campuses, gets to come together and, and just have fun celebrating Christmas. But beyond that, I have a Christmas sweater that I wear one day a year. <laughs> and as the old joke says, tonight's the night. I'll be, I'll be wearing my sweater tonight. I don't care what the temperature is. If it's 100 degrees, I'm wearing my Santa Claus playing golf sweater at family night at our church every year. I'm going to wear it. So I'm excited. I, uh, I really I want to reiterate what uh, Rhett said earlier. And uh, Being up here yesterday and, and just seeing what God does and with the help group. And I was upstairs part of the time. I left about... 10 after 1, and <clears throat> those poor people up there were worn out. Uh, Carrie was running around going, how many more we got? <laughs> and I left at 10 after 1, and they still had 25 or 30 that hadn't got upstairs yet. And uh, so I, it's, I know uh, somebody says 375, I think it's the number that uh, we served yesterday. And I was sharing this with the folks at Arlington last month, and I want to share it with you just as a, uh, uh, I guess as a pastor, but also just as a brother in Christ. Um, it's really interesting to me to watch what God does in things like that when you're just simply serving. And the, when you really know that your faith is real is when you're just doing something for somebody else simply because they exist. You don't want anything. You're not asking for anything in return. You just are loving people in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what the help group is all about. But if nothing else... Here's what we do beyond doing that, which is incredibly important. But from a testimony point of view, those 375 people that came through obviously represent more than just the, that, that number. There are other people that are benefiting from that. But the mindset and the impression and the testimony that those people have, if they never darken the doors of Christ Church and never hear Marcus preach and never come to a worship service, if, if they never come here except at help group and they're served and the name Christ Church comes up out where they are, what's the one impression they have? Those are really good people. They're kind, they're loving, and they've certainly been generous to me and my family. And you know what? That's all good. That's all good. So I want to thank you and, and for all that, that goes on, both with your, your physical help, just being here and making it all possible, and uh, all that goes on. So, thank you, and I, and I really mean that. Once you turn to John chapter 1, you can relax. I'm not going to go through the, the book of John, those of you that know me. Uh, you know, when I left here today, literally today, 12 years ago today, we started the Arlington campus, December 16th, yeah, 12 years ago. And when I left, I was in John chapter 12. Uh, and at that point, I'd only been here 27 years or whatever it was. So uh, eventually, and maybe we get to heaven, we'll let Jesus finish that particular Bible study. And uh, we shall see. What I want to do today, we've sung a lot about Emmanuel today, and, and we're hearing a lot about that over the Christmas season. What, what I want to focus on today, if you'll notice the top of your handout, is the fact that at Christmas we talk about gifts and everything is about giving and yesterday was all about giving and, and what we do as believers is we love to give. Here's what I want you to think about today. I want us to focus on the depths of what God gave you at Christmas. 
the most incredible gift. We all know Jesus came. We all know he came and he died on the cross for us. But here's what I want you to think about. Everybody got, if you got one of those handouts, hold it up so I know you got it. Okay, good. I like, I can see that. You got it. Now, let's see if you can read. What's the title of today's message? No, so you can't read. God gave what? Now, one of the things I love to do as a believer is to stop at times when I'm doing my personal devotion, when I'm studying, and just reflect on something simple that I've just read in Scripture on the surface. And for just a moment, I want you to just bow your head, and we'll get back to this in a moment, and think about this fact. The greatest gift you have ever received was that at Christmas, God gave you himself. He gave you himself. You didn't deserve it. You can't earn it. You're not worthy of it. That's what grace is. He gave us the greatest. He gave himself. We didn't deserve it. Now, come out of your meditation because I don't want you sleeping. If anybody's going to sleep during the sermon, it will be me and only me. All right. So look at John chapter 1. So what I want us to focus on today is the incarnation, Latin for in the flesh. I was sharing with the folks last week, I took four years of Latin, and I learned two things. Wainy, witty, wicky. It's what Caesar said when he came back from Gaul, which means I came, I saw, I conquered. I remember that. And what's the other thing? I learned the incarnation, in the flesh, carnivore. Uh, Latin's an incredible language, but that's a different subject. So, the incarnation, God in the flesh. What is the significance of that for us? What we celebrate at Christmas, but we should revel in and glory in moment by moment every day that God came in the flesh. One of the, one of the Christmas carols that you hear them, even on secular stations, you'll hear it all the time. You hear it sung uh, a lot, obviously, this time of year. is joy to the world. The Lord has come. You realize that that song originally was written not as a Christmas celebration, but as a celebration that about the second coming, that the king is, going, is coming to reign. He is the savior. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Joy to the world. I want us to focus on that today. The joy that we have as believers. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He gave. And what did he give? himself. He gave his only begotten son, the unique second person of the Trinity. God the Son came, and here's a little prepositional phrase I want you to think about all day. He came for us. Us is a plural pronoun. I learned that in English somewhere along the line. Us is a plural pronoun. Plural includes you, person next to you, includes me, includes everybody in the room, includes everybody on the planet right now, and includes everybody that's ever been on the planet from Adam to this moment. Children are being born even as we speak. For God so loved that he gave himself to us. What's so significant about this gift? Ray Stedman, great uh, preacher back in the, the 60s and the 70s, and, and I study him a lot. Here's what he said. 
Jesus was easily the most shattering, the most radical and truly revolutionary character that's ever appeared in human history. More books have been written about Jesus than any other figure of the past. More music has been composed. More pictures have been painted. More great drama has been written about Jesus than any other person. Have you ever wondered why? For example, what's today's date? You, you're, it's okay to speak. December? Two thousand eighteen. Where did two thousand eighteen come from? The life of Jesus of Nazareth. Why him? Why him? Back to the quote. Have you ever wondered why? Why is it that human beings have never been able to forget Jesus of Nazareth? Why does he not fade into the dim past as others have? We don't spend that much time with Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, or other great leaders. We still know who they are. But we do not spend all that focus of interest and attention on them. But Jesus looms as large in our society as if, he, as if he was contemporary with us. Why is that? Why is he the most powerful personality ever to appear on this planet? And I would say, I would add, end quote, I would add the most controversial. He said to himself, I came to divide. You've got to make a decision. Are you in or are you out? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You choose to follow me. So many great illustrations of this in the Gospels. One of my favorites is he was asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? And he got the responses. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say this. And then he asked that great question. Can you imagine being there in that moment in that, that circle and having the Son of God look you in the eyes and say, who do you say that I am? Because that is the ultimate question every human being has to answer. Who do you say Jesus of Nazareth is? Is he the greatest man that ever lived? Without question. Greatest teacher that ever lived? Without question. But in my heart, in my life, in my mindset, in my philosophy of life, my belief system, and everybody has one, is he God? Is he my Lord? Is he the one who dominates my thinking, my moral decisions, my value judgments, all that, I, that is Randy Lockley? Is it based on, I want to honor Jesus Christ. I want to do what he would do. I want to please him. Is he my Lord and Savior, or is he just somebody great that I admire? There have been a lot of great men and women that I admire. I serve Jesus Christ. I worship him, but that's the key. He alone is worthy of worship. You can, you can respect, revere, learn from, emulate, want to be like a lot of people, but you worship only God. And by the way, everybody worships some God. If you're an atheist, who do you worship? Yourself. You're secular humanists. Who do you worship? Yourself. And ultimately, if, you if your decision is, I, I choose not to follow Jesus Christ, you're worshiping an unknown God. You're worshiping someone who is not God because he alone is deity. That's why he is the most controversial figure that's ever walked the planet because you have to make that decision. Who do you say that I am? He proved himself to be God. So let's look at John chapter 1. 
It's an incredible prologue. We're just going to read two verses, and then we're going to focus on verse 14. Look at John 1.1. 1, 1. Now, you realize, and I know you know, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's Gospel is totally different than what's called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They were written to give an historical record account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. They were written from my, from my biographical point of view. This is who this man is. John didn't do that. John was written not from a bio, biographical point of view, but from a theological point of view. The others contained theology, yes. But John had one point in mind, and we're not going to turn there today, but it's in John 20, verse 30 and 31, where he said this. I'm going to paraphrase these things are written that you might know that he is God and that through him you might have life. Amen. Because he alone can give you that life. He said so himself. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. He didn't mean money. You hear somebody preaching he meant money, you need to turn them off and run from that false teaching. He's saying, I came that you might know the essence, the meaning of life and enjoy it in the true sense of everything it's meant to be. Amen. You were created in my image, and I want you to know God. Not know about God, not be religious. I want you to know, know, relational who God is. So John writes his. It's, it, he's an old man when he writes this. Probably one of the last books written in our New Testament. And his purpose is to present Jesus it's the great I am. I love John chapter 8, where Jesus turns to those religious, hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisees. And they're bragging about their father Abraham. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And those Jews, particularly that group of Jews, when he said, I am, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They went back to the burning bush. They knew he's claiming to be God. And the Bible says from that moment forward, what was their one desire about Jesus? Got to kill him. Got to kill him. We got to kill God. Because he's wrecking our political base. He's challenging our authority. Man, there's so many great things that Jesus said. and That's not our focus today. But you ought to meditate on phrases like that. Before Abraham was, I am. Who you think was talking to Moses in that bush? Jesus of Nazareth. Who you think walked in the garden with Adam and Eve? Jesus of Nazareth. Who you think was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Jesus of Nazareth. No, he wasn't Jesus at that point, but that's who it was. It was God the Son. God the Son. God the Son. By the way, that's who your Savior is as you sit here today. It's God the Son. So John 1 as he's introducing this great prologue, look what he says. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Drop down to verse 14, which is our real focus for today. Verse 14, and the Word who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God, and in between you, he, he was creator. Verse 14, that Word became flesh, incarnation, in the flesh. That Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we, plural, beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full 
of grace and truth. John Calvin calls these two verses the great speech of God, where he simply announces glory. For us, the glory of God came to earth in the person of God the Son. For example, how does the Gospel of Matthew begin? You've all memorized it. How does it begin? Uh, let's see. So-and-so begat so-and-so. What's a begat? I got $100. You tell what a begat is. <laughs> Somebody begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, and then you get down to Joseph and Mary somewhere along in there. How does Luke begin? So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. Now, those things are important, particularly to Jews. Genealogies were incredibly important. That's why Matthew wrote it. Luke wrote it as a, as a chronological account. So they begin with, and, then, and Mark begins with his earthly ministry. Matthew and Luke begin with his birth on earth. Mark begins with his earthly ministry on earth. Where's John begin? Look at verse 1 again. In the beginning, good place to begin, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How's your Bible begin to Genesis 1-1? In the beginning. If you think that's an accident, you ain't paying attention. Both in Greek, the structure, and what was going on. John, who's proving that Jesus is God, begins with eternity. Why would he begin with eternity? Because what's the only self-existent entity in the entire universe without a beginning, no beginning, no creation, who is it? It's God. Prior to saying in Genesis, in the beginning, God created out of nothing, God created, spoke, spoke, word. Please don't miss that. In the beginning, God spoke the universe into existence. And before there was a universe, what existed? Only God in John 17, 5, as Jesus is about to leave the planet in the upper room discourse, he's about, about, about to begin that incredible high priestly prayer with his disciples. He says these words, Father, I get goosebumps every time I think about it and quote it. Father, glorify me together with the glory we had, plural pronoun, before the world began. You see, prior to there being a universe, I was listening to a show this morning as I was getting ready and shaving and it turned on the radio and uh, these people were talking about they found these what they call exoplanets, which are simply like uh, moons and things they found out there. They think that there might be life on exoplanets, planets outside our sun. They were so excited. They were just talking about the Milky Way and how many there were, thousands upon thousands. And I was thinking... You know, God just said, I think I'll stick some planets here. And he spoke it. Read the account in Genesis. It says he made stars. That's it. That's all it says. He made stars. Our sun is one of billions. God just said, I think I'll chunk some stars out here. He's omnipotent, omniscient. And before he did any of that, the only thing that existed was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons in perfect 
unity, fellowship, harmony is God. That's why this is so significant, verse 14, in the word that self-existent, non-created entity who spoke the universe into existence came to earth to be one of us. It'd be like you choosing to become an ant. He condescended, Philippians tells us. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He chose volitionally to become a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. Not King Herod, Jesus, a poor carpenter's son, a wandering nomad who allowed himself to be crucified. Why? For God so loved us. That's the message of Christmas. God gave you, me, and humanity himself. Begins with eternity past. Revelation 19, you don't have to turn there. The Bible says the following words. He, Jesus, was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 1 John chapter 1, the Bible says this, that which was from the beginning. By the way, who wrote 1 John? Who wrote 1 John? Same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. Who wrote 2 John? No, that was his brother, 2 John. Like George Foreman. You should name them all John, and then that was his little brother, 2 John, and then he had another little brother, 3 John. 1 John 1 says, that which was from the beginning. See the same phraseology in the beginning, from the beginning. We've heard, in other words, that eternal God, I, John, was privileged enough to sit and listen to. By the way, John called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Sounds kind of arrogant, doesn't it? Kind of like, yeah, hey, man, Jesus loved me. I know you got friends. I know you got people that you get your, you get your homeboys. Jesus loved me. That's not what he, no, no. When he says the disciple or the apostle whom Jesus loved, you know what he means by that? Wow, he loved me. I'm overwhelmed. He loved me. Back to this. We've heard, we've seen with our eyes. We heard him. We looked at him. We've looked on him. We've handled, we touched him concerning what? The word of life. The life was manifested, made evident. We have seen and we bear witness and we declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father. There it is again, eternal self-existent with the Father and was manifested to us. John 1.14. He's almost repeating it in 1 John 1. Now, what does word mean? Back to, back to where we are in John 1. In the beginning was word, the word was with God, the word was God, the word was, became flesh and dwelt among us. Word means logos. We get words like logic from it. Logos. It means an audible or a visible explanation of something, of a thought. It's so magnificent because here's what it means. Jesus himself said it. Here's what it means. In the beginning was word, words with God, the word was God. The word became flesh. Jesus of Nazareth dwelt among us. We beheld him. We saw him. We listened to him. Remember how the Bible talked about him? Even his enemies said what about the way he taught? Hey, this dude teaches with authority. They used dude a lot back then. This, 
This dude teaches with an authority we don't even understand. Here's the deal, what it means in the original language. In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus explained God. That's what it means. That's why to this day, he's still the most controversial person that ever walked the planet. Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know he's God. And that drives people who don't believe in Jesus bonkers. Deep theological term. What do you mean he's God? He, he can't be God. God's karma. Well, I hope you don't step into eternity believing that. I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. I wish the incarnation were true because I'm coming back as Larry Bird. <laughs> Unfortunately, it ain't true. The Bible says the point of the man wants to die and after that judgment, not after that judgment, he gets to come back and try again. You know why people love karma? Satan loves people to love it because in your mind you're thinking, I'll get it right the next time, or I'll get it right the next time, or I'll get it right the next time. That's why universalism has become so popular, even in churches, that you die and you can get saved after you die. No, you can't. No, you can't. According to the Word of God, all right, let's finish this up. So he's the word of God. Logos, he explains God. He explains God. So now let's get to the handout and we'll run through it. The incarnation of God. God in the flesh. The eternal God became one of us. I read a cute story this week, and it's, it's a true story. It was, and and I, I thought about it because I have a little, I don't know, five-year-old granddaughter's with us this weekend, and she doesn't like storms. They bother her. And this little girl, there's a horrible thunderstorm was, was in their neighborhood, rocking the house and the lightning thing. And she said, she said, Daddy, Daddy. He says, what are we going to do? And she said, he said, it's okay. God will take care of us. We're going to be all right. So another, another clap of thunder. She says, Dad, what's God doing? He said, it's, it's okay. We're lightning and thunder, and we're going we're gonna to be okay. It happened a third time. She said, Daddy, I, I don't know. I said, I know we believe in God, but right now I'd like a God with some skin on it. <laughs> you know what Jesus is? If you don't learn anything else this Christmas, you know what Jesus is? He's God with skin on it. That's what he is. Amen. There's so much that deep theological in that meaning. But for example... Hebrews 2.17 says, he became like us in every way. So he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews tells us he died once for all and sat down because his work was finished. You, you don't have to keep paying for your sins. He, he paid for them. Remember when he's hanging on the cross and he said it is finished? That meant you're not getting that bill in the mail anymore. There was a literal meaning in Greek that you don't owe this debt anymore. He just paid it. Amen. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God gave us himself. You ever got one of those gifts and you were like, wow, this is a really good gift. You ought to wake up every day and say, wow. Like, here's what I find myself doing in my prayer life all the time. You know, sometimes you pray and you think you're selfish and Sometimes we are selfish. But the Holy Spirit always drives me back to one thing. 
Jesus gave you eternal life. You've got peace in your soul. You don't need anything else. You got it. You got that hope that non-believers don't have. That's why I love to share at funerals. Because I know there are people there who need Jesus. And they're going to hear about it. You never know what God's going to do. So let's look at it. The incarnation of God, number one on your handout. First thing, verse 14. God the Son became one of us. Although we've been talking about the Word became flesh. Great way to remember it is like this. I love to alliterate things. The infinite became an infant in that little manger. The infinite, eternal, became Emmanuel, God with us. The infinite became an infant. And by the way, this is really important. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The tense of that verb, compared with the tense and verb, and I, and I know this can be boring, but it'll be, it's, it can be very helpful. In verse 14, when the word became flesh, it's aorist tense in Greek, which means that it happened at a definite moment in time. Like when your birthday, whatever it is, mine, January 17th, 1954. Definite moment in time, the planet was enlightened when Randy was born. Not quite the same, but it did happen. At a definite moment in time, that's verse 14. At a definite moment in time, the eternal Logos God, the Word, God the Son, stepped into this planet in a little place called Bethlehem. He became flesh. Back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The tense of that verb was eternal. Not aorist, just is. See the difference? What's Isaiah 9, 6 say? It's on your handout if you don't know. Unto us a child was born, unto us a son was given. Don't miss the difference. The child was born. He hadn't always been the child. How long had he been the son? Forever. Forever. That's the gift. The baby was born. The gift was the son. The incarnation. God the son became one of us. Secondly, God the son lived as one of us. He dwelt among us. What the word dwelt means, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The word dwelt in Greek means tabernacled. In the Old Testament, what was the first place where they met God? What was it called? The tabernacle. When we get to Revelation, you know what the Bible says God will do? He will tabernacle with us. You know where he tabernacles now? In our hearts. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Tabernacle, temple, Jesus, church. That's God's great plan. Tabernacle, temple, Jesus, church. Do you understand why it's so cool to be a Christian? God dwells in us. God has chosen us to be his vehicle to reveal himself to the world. It's amazing. Man, I don't deserve that. Neither do you. Brett was sharing earlier, like Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ did what? Died for us. Us. He lived as one of us. He lived as one of us. Revelation 7 says this. 
They are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. It's in Revelation in the future. He who sits on the throne will dwell among them, tabernacle. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That is your current possession. If you're born again, that's what awaits you when you pass away. It's yours in Christ. Third, God the Son manifested God to us. We talked about that a moment ago. We beheld his glory. That means what he was worth. His importance, his significance, of the significance of God, the brightness of God, the splendor of God. We beheld it. You know what the word beheld means? I know it's an old English word, but it's a beautiful one. You ever, you've ever seen something and you just couldn't take your eyes off of it? I know Mary has a picture of me and it's like that. <laughs> then you had the opposite, like you look in the mirror and you're like, I, I got to turn away. But have you ever seen something you just can't take your eyes off of it? You are mesmerized by it. That's the word beheld. We beheld his glory. We were just like, Listen to him. Look at him. Be around him. How about being in that boat the night, the storm's raging, and they look up and Jesus is walking across the lake. I bet you didn't take your eyes off of him. Remember, Peter had his eyes on him. And what did Peter do? Walked on top of the lake. When did he sink? When he took his eyes off Jesus. When he took his eyes off Jesus, he sank like a stone. We beheld his glory. What changed these men? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw him alive. They saw him alive. After he had been dead, they saw him alive. We beheld his glory. Now notice how the glory is described. As of the only begotten of the Father. Drop down for a moment and look at verse 18. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, there it is again, he has declared him. That means manifested him, made him evident to us. If you study the life of Jesus Christ, simple example, and I use this all the time just talking to people. If I'm witnessing to them or just having communication, people like, you know, they want to argue this. I said, fine. Throw the Bible out as being God's word. Create a, ba- a brand new world, brave new world. Create you one. And base it simply on the things that Jesus said. Forget Jesus, just so say Bill Jones said them. Here's our new world, the world of Bill Jones. And we're going to treat each other the way we'd like to be treated. I'm going to do unto you the way I'd like you to treat me. What kind of world would we have? Perfect? Perfect? Who said that? Oh, that was not Bill Jones. It was Jesus of Nazareth who said that. And all the magnificent things he said, where'd it come from? Those gospel writers weren't sharp enough to come up with all that. Where'd it come from? Because he's the eternal Logos. He explains the thought of what 
Who is God and what is life all about? That's why John said, in him is life. He's everything you ever wanted. That's Christmas. He gave you himself. Now look at the invitation of God, number two. What an incredible little phrase there in verse 14. Full of grace and truth. Full. Simply means complete and abounding in a perfect balance. Please don't miss this. It's really important. Grace is unmerited favor. You know that. That's you getting something you don't deserve. Salvation. Truth means something that is absolutely pure with no error. You want grace without truth just becomes sentiment. Truth without grace becomes religious legalism. But when you balance it together, you have Christianity. Full of grace, full of truth. With Jesus, you get both fully, full of grace, full of truth. Jesus will tell, here's the, here's the best way to understand it. When you come to Jesus Christ, that's how you get saved. You realize you're a sinner. Jesus will tell you the truth about your sin. You're a sinner. And then what he turns around and says to you, well, let me tell you the solution to your sin. I am. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? He knew everything about her. He saved her. And he's told her not to do that anymore. In simplicity. For God so loved the world that he gave. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the wages of sin is death. But the gift, Christmas, the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Through whom? Jesus Christ our Lord. Full of grace and truth. He explains to you, you have a debt you cannot pay. And he says, because I'm who I am, I will pay your debt for you. And that's when you see things in the Bible like he is propitiation. That word simply means he satisfied God's demand for judgment because he was the perfect sacrifice. So God put the debt that I owe, you owe, and everybody else owes, they put it on him. God put it on him. Jesus paid the debt because he could. No matter how good I am, I'm never going to be able to pay my debt because I am a sinner. Not just somebody who commits sins. I am a sinner. Something about my nature has to change. You know what that change is? Jesus saves me and gives me a new nature. His nature. I'm born again. That's Christmas. Full of grace and truth. And then God loved us, the next thing. Grace. God loved us. You come to him just like you are. And he accepts you, loves you, changes you. Tom Lowe, a great preacher, said, Grace is the greatest concept in human history. Think about it. Pick a religion. Everyone, except Christianity, requires you to, to do something. Do something. Do this. Don't do that. You got to do this because you did do that. What does God say? There are none righteous. No, not one. We all come to him the same way. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how much you have, doesn't matter how, how powerful you are. We all come to him the same way. By faith and repentance and what he did. His work, not my work, his work. That's Christmas. I'm going to give you eternal life. Just come to me. 
Christmas is a celebration of grace and truth. Jesus was born in a humble way, in a horrific world. He was broken for our sin. He didn't do anything wrong. He was rejected because of who he was. Tim Keller says it this way. Christmas is the end of thinking you're better than someone else. Because Christmas is telling you, you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. The incarnation. So God the Son paid for us. He paid for us. Truth. He was able to pay for our sins because of who he was. The sacrificial, substitutionary lamb of God. He is the God-man. Jesus is not a picture of God. He's God in the flesh. Amen. He identified with us in every way. He got tired. You can read about it in the Gospels. He got tired. He got thirsty. He agonized. He cried. He bled. He was human in every way. But he was also God. So therefore, he could pay for our sin. Max Cato says, God loves you just the way you are, grace but he loves you too much to let you stay the way you are. Truth. God loves you. So then you see number three on your handout, and we're not doing number three today, but I want to put it on there because that's what we're talking about at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1 there says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God with us, and in that great Christmas carol, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace. We'll share a true story with you, and then we will close out our time together. It's a true story. There was a letter carrier. I don't know when it happened, but it is true. And a couple of months prior to Christmas, this was a postman, a couple of months prior to Christmas, his wife died suddenly. and had a little girl. And he was obviously devastated and didn't know how to handle it. And his little girl would talk about mommy and what are we going to do? And he would, he would cry and say to her, only eternity will, I'll ever get, we'll get over this. Only in eternity will this be healed for us. Only in eternity will we understand why mommy's gone. So he's working at the Christmas season, obviously a very hectic time for, for a letter carrier. He was working late one day, and his job was to all the mail that had, they didn't know where it went, to do something with it. So he's looking through, and he sees one that has his address on it, on the return ad address. And he opens it up, and his little girl's written a letter to Santa Claus. And in her letter, she says, my mommy died. And my daddy cries himself to sleep every night. And he says, only eternity will heal this. Santa, would you bring him a little eternity this year? Isn't that beautiful? Listen. Santa ain't bringing eternity. He brings a lot, but he ain't bringing eternity. Jesus has already brought it. That's the incarnation. 
So as we close out our time together, here's what I'd like you to do. I'm going to stand, and they're going to lead us in worship. If you want to sit, sit. If you want to stand, stand. I want you to meditate on what God gave you at Christmas. He gave you himself. You will never get a better present. It'll carry you through this life into eternity. If you'd like for me to pray with you, I'll be down front. Let's pray, and then we'll go. Father, we do thank you that Jesus Christ came, died, was buried, and he rose again. The message of Christmas is, Lord, you gave us yourself. Um, we can't even say thank you enough. It's not adequate. You know our hearts. I pray with my, beginning with me and with every heart here that we would focus on the fact you gave us yourself, God in the flesh. We'd revel in that and then go out and share that with our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.